0: Inspired by the C.S. Lewis book, Mere Christianity, this podcast is about why I believe what I believe. Welcome to Bear Christianity. In 1870, a Roman Catholic Church ecumenical council called Vatican I produced a document entitled Pastor Aeternus. Now that's spelled A-E-T-E-R-N-U-S, Pastor Aeternus. The first sentence of chapter one says this, We therefore teach and declare that according to the testimony of the gospel, the primacy of jurisdiction over the universal church of God was immediately and directly promised and given to blessed Peter the apostle by Christ the Lord. Now, there are 4 chapters of this document, Pastor Eternus, and at the very end of each chapter, it basically says, if anyone does not hold to the above information, let him be anathema. Now, that is a word often translated accursed. So, Roman Catholics will differ on the meaning of this phrase, let him be anathema. Some will say it means you're going to hell. Others act as if it's simply a slap on the wrist. Now, I think those who hold the latter interpretation are just being soft. They're just trying to make Roman Catholicism seem a little softer than maybe it was historically. If the Roman Catholic Church is the true church, then be bold about it. Don't fluff it up or or try to pad what the Roman Catholic Church is claiming. They say, let him be anathema. Supposedly, all the Roman Catholic dogmas are binding on everyone to believe and are part of the very gospel of Jesus Christ. They are the supposed teachings of the apostles that are important, necessary for salvation. So if you're a Roman Catholic, go ahead and when, when the word anathema is used, use it the same way Paul used it. Paul uses it in Galatians 1.9. He tells the church in Galatia, as we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be anathema or accursed. Now, I believe the Roman Catholic Church is teaching a gospel contrary to that which is found in Scripture. So if the Roman Catholic Church is true, then I certainly stand condemned. If the Roman Catholic Church is false, its leaders stand condemned before God for adding to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, in the papal bull, Unum Sanctum, Pope Boniface in 1302 stated, Consequently, we declare state define and pronounce now they i don't know that they can make it any clearer they are trying to get their point across so we declare state define and pronounce that it is altogether necessary to salvation for every human creature to be subject to the roman pontiff now the roman pontiff that's just a way of saying the pope Um, I live in Raleigh, North Carolina, and one of the high schools in Raleigh is a Catholic school named Cardinal Gibbons. And here's a quote from James Cardinal Gibbons himself. To be true followers of Christ, all Christians must be in communion with the See of Rome, that's another way of saying the Pope, where Peter rules in the person of his successor. So in the next few episodes, they will be centered around the Pope of the Roman Catholic Church. And there is so much information on this topic. So I am just giving you some highlights. As always, listening to debates on this issue is a quick way to get a lot of pertinent information, which is just packed into a few hours of a debate. So check the episode notes for some links to those. Now, in today's episode, I'm going to share some of the claims made in this Vatican I document that I mentioned earlier called Pastor Eternus. Now, you can always connect with me, bearchristianity at gmail.com, or you can message me on Instagram at therealbearmartin. And this episode of Bear Christianity is sponsored by the Reese's Easter Basket, Around Easter time, there's countless amounts of candy hidden in little two-piece plastic eggs. The problem is you never know what kind of candy you're getting, and let's face it, Everybody wants the Reese's peanut butter eggs. No other candy compares. Now, with the Reese's Easter basket, when you pick up a plastic egg filled with an unknown candy, the Reese's Easter basket transforms that into something you know you'll want, a Reese's peanut butter egg. So here's how it works. Pick up a plastic egg with three-year-old candy corn, Place it in the Reese's Easter basket and pull out a smooth and creamy peanut butter egg. Bear Christianity listeners receive a free treadmill when they use the coupon code just one more. The Reese's Easter basket. Get what you want. Details may vary. Some restrictions may apply. Now, a quick note before we really get going on this potpourri, uh, Peter, or Simon Peter, is also referred to as Cephas in the Bible. That's C-E-P-H-A-S. So his original name given to him by his parents was Simon. He's sometimes called Simon Bar-Jonah or Simon Bar-Jonas, which means Simon, son of Jonah or son of Jonas. So that's his, his name given to his parents. That was Simon, okay? Jesus actually gives him the name Peter, which in Greek is Petros, and we're going to get into that in some later episodes, and the Jews spoke Aramaic. In Aramaic, Peter is translated Cephas, or Kepha, or Kephas, Kepha, I've heard lots of different people say it lots of different ways, but in the Bible it's spelled C-E-P-H-A-S. So Simon, Simon Peter, Peter, or Cephas, thats all talking about the same person, okay? So it's just different languages and different uh, ways of translating those words into the English language. So I just wanted to make that super clear, because I'll read different verses, and sometimes he's called Cephas, sometimes he's called Peter, sometimes he's called Simon. All right, now, in the introduction of Pastor Eternus, it speaks of Jesus Christ praying in John seventeen that the believers who would follow the apostles would be united so here's the verse john seventeen twenty and twenty one Jesus says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So in introducing all these dogmas about the Pope, the first thing that, that the Roman Catholic Church wants to get across is that we we must have unity. And Jesus prayed for unity before being crucified and we find that unity in Peter. That's that's what they're going to get to eventually. And so that's that's kind of how they're setting it up. And this is the the Beating drum of the Roman Catholic Church. We're the one true church that founded by Christ for over two thousand years. And look at all those Protestants. There's over thirty thousand Protestant denominations. If Jesus prayed for unity, there's no way Protestantism can be true because look at all the differences. We are the one. You know, the Catholic Church is the one true church. We are unified. Um, and so, and and so, there's the reference to this John 17 prayer. By Jesus. Now, this, this claim to unity is, is such a superficial claim by the Roman Catholic Church. And also, let's deal with the 30,000 Protestant denominations. I've heard this by a bunch of Catholics. As I've been watching, I watch lots of YouTube videos and debates and things like that. This, this thing comes up over and over again. I don't, I don't know exactly where this 30,000 number uh, came up from, but I did find a list of Oh, it's www.biblicalcatholic.com. I'll I'll link it in the episode notes. Um, here are some of the entries of these supposed thirty thousand different Protestant denominations. For the A category, this is just some of them: Alianza Cristiana y Missionara del U. This isn't that's a church in another country. All-in-One Christ Fellowship, Allegheny Wesleyan Methodist Connection, Alliance Baptist of Paris, Alliance Church in South Africa, Alliance Church of Swaziland, Alliance Church of Zimbabwe. You know, so these are not different Protestant denominations. These are these are names of churches. Now, how about the C's? Chinese Christian Gospel Center, Chinese Churches, Chinese Evangelical Church, Chinese Evangelical Zion Church, Chinese Evangelistic Crusade. So these are if If you took a lot of protestant churches there's there's these minute little differences it to say that there's thirty thousand different denominations and they just all completely disagree with one another is just ridiculous this is this is Catholics fudging the numbers, so to speak and I've mentioned this before the but the unity proclaimed by the Roman Catholic Church. It is a false unity. There are so many different opinions in the Roman Catholic world. I mean, just th- just some differences nowadays, there's a big time dispute in Roman Catholicism about the current pope. Some Catholics go so far as to say he's an illegitimate pope. There are lots of Catholics really dissatisfied with with their current pope. And then others strongly defend him. Another example is our current president of the United States. Supposedly, he's a baptized Catholic. And the Roman Catholic Church is well known for having a strong position against abortion, which I agree with. I'm against abortion too. However, our, a quick Google search will give you plenty of evidence that President Biden is is, is for abortion. He's made extremely strong straight statements in favor of abortion, and and keeping that right for women and supporting the the upholding of Roe v. Wade and so it's it, you know we have a baptized catholic so some some catholics would say oh no he's not a true catholic and other catholics are saying yes he is a true catholic there there's tons of disagreements in catholicism and so they can say oh you know we're the one unified true church but there's there's this huge broad spectrum of of disagreements so it's a, it's this false claim that it's the that 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 is a unified church, that that's the church that Jesus was praying for in John 17. If the Roman Catholic Church thinks they have some kind of supernatural unity, which is only found in their church, I am just not seeing it. Um, So if you hear this concept about, oh, there's 30,000 Protestant denominations, you know, Look at this website and just start scrolling through them. I mean, some of the some of this stuff is just ridiculous. Um, this is just a compilation of any church name they could possibly think of. Now, Jesus' prayer for unity amongst believers in John 17 did not go unanswered by God the Father. There is an immediate bond among believers which transcends race and gender and nationality and even, believe it or not, Protestant denominations. Anyone that is truly saved by the grace of God will experience this when they meet another believer. It is instant. And though there may be disagreements on smaller issues, there is a bond. It's almost like a, a good family. They disagree sometimes and they argue, but at the end of the day, they know that they love each other and they will be there for each other no matter what. And so I have experienced this before. I, I get to meet a lot of new people every day with my job and there is a, a an instant bond, a unity, when you meet a fellow believer. And so I believe that Jesus' prayer was, in that regard, not for the Roman Catholic Church. Now, back to the introduction of this Pastor Eternus document. Right after referring to Jesus' prayer for unity in John 17, it says, quote, And so that the episcopate also might be one and undivided, and so that by means of a closely united priesthood, the multitude of the faithful might be kept secure in the oneness of faith and communion, he, that is Jesus Christ, set blessed Peter over the rest of the apostles. So, you know, that there's the quote there. So in order to be unified, according to this document, Jesus places Peter as head of the apostles. So Jesus is over the rest of them. Now, this is not mentioned in Jesus' prayer for unity in John 17, but the Roman Catholics will use other verses to support this claim, and we're going to get into those in a little bit. Now, further down in Pastor Iternus, it reads, quote, We, for the preservation, safekeeping, and increase of the Catholic flock with the approval of the sacred council, judge it to be necessary to propose for the belief and acceptance of all the faithful in accordance with the ancient and constant faith of the universal church, the doctrine of the institution, perpetuity, and nature of the sacred apostolic primacy. End quote. Um, now, further down, it, it says this. It refers to the teachings listed in Pastor Aeternus as being the, quote, clear doctrine of Holy Scripture as it has ever been understood by the Catholic Church. So let that sink in a, a, a little bit. These are the claims that the Roman Catholic Church is, is making. Their doctrines about the Pope and papal infallibility are in accordance with the ancient and constant faith of the universal church, and they teach the clear doctrine of Holy Scripture as it has ever been understood by the Catholic Church. This means that the earliest Christians knew Peter was the Pope, even though they, they may not have used the the word, they, they may not have literally called him Pope, but the earliest Christians had a working knowledge of these dogmas of the the pope that peter had authority over the rest of the apostles that he was the universal leader of the church and and also the uh, working knowledge of the doctrine of papal infallibility and so based on these claims of of pastor aeternus this vatican 1 document this was the, the constant belief ever since the, the very beginning of the church. So I've mentioned in previous episodes how the Roman Catholic Church claims that some dogmas develop over time, like an acorn into an oak tree. But for the dogmas concerning the Pope, this cannot be the case You know, based on the quotes I've, I've just given you. If something is the ancient and constant faith of the church, then it, it can't really take hundreds of years to develop. We've, we should be able to see evidence of that from the very beginning. So the Roman Catholic Church is making an extremely bold claim when it comes to the Pope and his authority over the universal church. And, and keep this in mind, is the evidence strong enough to support such a claim? That's the question I, I want you to ask yourself. Now, the first thing Rome claims about the Pope is that Peter was given primacy over all the other apostles. In chapter one of Pastor Aeternus, which is entitled The Institution of the Apostolic Primacy in Blessed Peter, it says this, we therefore teach and declare that according to the testimony of the gospel, the primacy of jurisdiction over the universal church of God was immediately and directly promised and given to Blessed Peter the Apostle by Christ the Lord. Now, notice those words, immediately and directly given to Peter. So Jesus made Peter the leader over the apostles. Now, clearly, the apostles must have known this, right? I mean, if there were any disputes after Jesus ascended to heaven, they just went to Peter, right? I mean, he was their leader. Now, is this the way we see Peter treated in the New Testament? Absolutely not. Does any New Testament author ever single out Peter as having primacy of jurisdiction over the rest of the apostles? If Jesus clearly gave Peter this superior position over the disciples, then why are they arguing only a short while later about who would be the greatest among them? Surely this would be a good time for Jesus to remind them, hey guys, we've been over this already. Peter is going to be the leader. He has primacy over all of you. Remember, I promised that to him in Caesarea Philippi. In fact, nobody can be saved unless they subject themselves to Peter and those which succeed Peter. No, Jesus never mentions Peter as being given primacy in any way in response to this argument about who would be the greatest among them. And Peter never claims this primacy for himself. Uh, Peter himself refers, he he refers to himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ in 1 Peter 1.1 and as a fellow elder in 1 Peter 5.1. Never does Peter claim primacy for himself in the New Testament. And and so Roman Catholics they look at this and they say, well, Peter was just being humble. He was being a servant leader, and he wasn't, you know, making a bold claims about himself. Well, his successors, because we, I mean, there are some pretty pompous claims by popes in the past. So evidently, they're not quite as humble as as Peter was. Now we also see that Peter is sent by other apostles in acts 8:14 it says this now when the apostles at jerusalem heard that samaria had received the word of god they sent them peter and john so peter is being sent by other apostles he's not you know sitting on his throne and and sending out and directing the church and and leading he was actually sent by other apostles the next thing i want to bring up is paul does not consider peter any kind of like leader of the universal church in 1 Corinthians 1.10, Paul says this, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you may be united in the same mind and the same judgment. So here is we're talking about unity. And and as I've already discussed, this is what this Vatican I, Pastor Eternist document is talking about. There's There's got to be unity in the church. Now, here's the question. What does Paul say is the answer to unity? Uh, versus what does the Roman Catholic Church say? I mean, surely, if Paul says, I appeal to you brothers, You know, be unified, having the same mind. So surely, here, Paul is gonna say, "You know, do what Jesus said. He said Peter was the leader. So everybody just line up with Peter and that'll keep us all unified. So Paul's gonna set them straight, right? No, listen to what Paul says in, in verses 11, 12, the, the following verses, Paul says, for it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers, What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. So here is Paul's response to this. In verse 13, he says, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you or were you baptized in the name of Paul? So this was the perfect opportunity to set them straight. You know, he could say, obviously, you know, Christ died for you. Christ was crucified for you. And then now that Christ is risen, follow Peter. That's what Jesus told us to do. Everybody needs to get in line and follow Peter. Why are you following me? Or why are you you following Apollos? Everybody knows you're, you're supposed to follow Cephas or Peter. But that's not what Paul says. In fact, you could take the verse that, you know, Paul kind of asked a rhetorical question, is Christ divided? You could take this verse and uh, and insert the other names that Paul uses. Is Christ divided? Was Apollos crucified for you or were you baptized in the name of Apollos? Is Christ divided? Was Peter crucified for you or were you baptized in the name of Peter? I mean, Paul's clear point here is we follow Christ, and, and he doesn't, this is the perfect opportunity to say, everybody get in line with Peter. And then think about other writings of Paul. I mean, Paul talks to Timothy and he says, this is the requirements for elders. This is the requirements for deacons. This is how, this is church government type stuff. This is how church is supposed to work. And never we have any mention of following the Pope or Peter or Peter's successors or the Bishop of Rome or any of that. Never. Now, on to another argument I've heard Roman Catholics use, trying to defend this primacy of Peter, that, that Peter is is somehow over the rest of the apostles. Say, they'll say, in the Gospels, when the disciples are listed, Peter's name is always first. Now, why would he be first, Catholics ask? You know, he wasn't the oldest, he wasn't the first one chosen, so why would he be listed first unless he was the leader? Well, let's just apply this to Galatians 2.9. Paul writes... And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. So here we have James listed first, and Peter is not mentioned as the sole universal leader of the church. He is in a group of James himself and John and and Paul says they seemed to be pillars they seemed to be the leaders of the church and so that that's that's what how Paul is associating James Peter and John nowhere near this this idea that Peter was the supreme leader over all the other apostles now in the new testament we have better evidence for James being the leader of the church as opposed to Peter. In Acts 15, there's a church council concerning whether or not Gentile Christians need to be circumcised in order to be considered part of the church. In Acts 15, too, it tells us that Paul and Barnabas went to the church in Jerusalem to consult with who? Peter as leader and then, and then the apostles under him? No, Peter is never singled out as a leader. It simply says, in Acts fifteen, two, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. That is the question of: Do Gentiles need to be circumcised to be considered part of the church? Now, at this council, Peter does speak, and he speaks first in the in the account in Acts fifteen. But it's he's just giving his testimony. He's like a witness that's speaking before the council. And then Paul and Barnabas speak as well. But then James has the. Final Final word in Acts fifteen thirteen after they finish after they finished speaking James replied brothers listen to me now this listen to me is in the imperative it it's like a command it's like me telling my children listen to me then James restates some of the evidence given and lists how it does agree with scripture. And so James is like laying out his decision, essentially. Then James says in Acts 15, 19, Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. It is James' judgment that the Gentiles do not have to be circumcised. Now, this word for judgment is a, a common word. In, it's used a lot in the Bible, but this also it's also used to describe the judgment of God. It, it, it's, it's from the Greek word kreno, meaning I judge. And so this is James' judgment. He speaks with the imperative. He speaks with a command, listen to me. And then James gives his judgment. James is the only one at this council who uses this strong language. Yet the Roman Catholics downplay this because it does not agree with all their other beliefs about Peter. So they'll say, "Oh, you know, James. This James was not in any sort of authority over Peter. He. Would, this is just, you know, we shouldn't read too much into this. Well, let's flip the script a little bit. Imagine if Peter used an imperative and then gave his judgment. We, we still, you know, the, we would never hear the end of it from Catholics. You know, they would, they would use this strongly to defend that Peter was the pope. Everybody was listening to Peter." but instead when james says it oh it's no big deal we shouldn't really care that much about it so you know they for a protestant when we have sola scriptura as our as our ultimate authority we go to scripture and we we are trying to read scripture and see what scripture is telling us we don't have to we don't have to put on our roman catholic interpretive goggle you know bible reader glasses and then try to find what the Roman Catholic Church tells us to find in Scripture. And that's what's happening here. The the Roman Catholic Church in 1870 defined all these dogmas about the pope and peter and his successors and infallibility and so now the roman catholic has to dig through the bible and try to find anything that they can that they possibly can to try to justify all the bold claims of the roman catholic church you know if as you're looking into this as you're listening to the debates just listen out for that Any evidence that they can possibly scrounge together that supports their claim, they will put so much emphasis on it. And then any strong evidence against it, it's like, oh, that doesn't really matter. So just look for that inconsistency there in the Roman Catholic position. They must find in Scripture what the Roman Catholic Church tells them to find. They must interpret it the way the Roman Catholic Church tells them to interpret it. It is sola ecclesia. The Church alone tells the Roman Catholic what Scripture is, what it means, what tradition is, what it means. I know I've said it a million times, but that is a key issue when it comes to Roman Catholicism. Now, Some more examples. Throughout the New Testament, despite all the warnings about false teachers and false doctrines creeping into the church, never once does any New Testament author encourage their readers to follow Peter and his successors as a guide for the church. Not once. Now, to this, the Roman Catholic may say, Well, you know, just because it's not mentioned doesn't mean that they didn't believe that you know Peter was the the had primacy over the apostles. You know, in the Catholics' defense here, an argument from silence is typically not considered as strong. But come on, I mean, you would at least expect something about the primacy of Peter in the early church. He, you know, he's obviously an extremely important person in the church. He's the the most popular disciple in the gospels and he's you know a big part of the new testament but it is a major leap to say that peter was considered by all to be the supreme leader over the church and over the rest of the apostles and that and that this authority was given to him from jesus christ and the and the apostles all knew it Now, remember, the Roman Catholic Church claims their dogmas about Peter are in accordance with the ancient and constant faith of the universal church, and they are the clear doctrine of Holy Scripture as it has ever been understood by the Catholic Church. And if you don't believe that, you are anathema. So, how can they pronounce such things which, with such little evidence to support their claims? Because they are the Roman Catholic Church, and don't you dare disagree with the Roman Catholic Church. They are the Church of Jesus Christ for over 2,000 years. Again, sola ecclesia. The biblical evidence for the papal dogmas, it just doesn't exist. So, what they have to do is look back in Scripture and try to find what the Roman Catholic Church tells them to find. Surely, if the office of the Pope was founded by Jesus Christ as a means of preventing error from entering the church, you would think at least somebody would mention it in the New Testament. You know, you would think it would be important. But throughout the first few centuries, Christians discussed lots of different topics, yet never once did they simply ask the Pope. Now, in fact, the evidence of Peter ruling as the supreme bishop of the church in Rome is lacking in and of itself. The New Testament churches were led by groups of elders. A strong case can be made that there was not a single man who ruled as like the single bishop of the church in Rome until close to AD 140 and this is in obvious contrast to Vatican's one claim that the primacy of jurisdiction over the universal church of God was immediately and directly promised and given to blessed Peter the apostle so if it was if it was immediately and directly given to Peter i just do not see the evidence for that in the new testament now, after claiming that Peter was given this position of primacy among the, the apostles, Pastor Iternus cites Matthew 16, verses 16 through 19 as its next piece of evidence. Now, I'll read these verses for you, but I'm only going to discuss the first part today. Next week, we'll take a closer look at the rest of the verses. And they cite verses 16 through 19. I'm actually going to read verses 13 through 20, just to give you a little bit bigger context. Okay. Now it, it, so it's Matthew 16 verses 13 through 20. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah and others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Jesus said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Now, Jesus has been traveling around healing all kinds of diseases and winning theological debates against top Jewish leadership. And so you are going to get, if, if if you're Jesus, you're going to get a lot of people talking when you're doing these things. And so evidently there were many theories about who Jesus actually was. Many Jews thought Jesus was one of the great prophets of the Old Testament who had you know returned from the dead. Now, Jesus asked an extremely important question, a question that every single person must answer and their very life depends on the answer they give. Jesus asked the disciples, but who do you, that is in the plural, but who do y'all say that I am? And Peter gives a great answer. Peter like speaks for the group. You are the Christ, which is the Greek word for Messiah. So you are the Christ, the Messiah, the son of the living God. That's, That's Peter's answer. Now, with this, Jesus speaks directly to Peter. And we know this because the pronouns go from plural to singular. So Jesus said, who do y'all say that I am? He's talking to the whole group. Peter gives an answer, and then Jesus speaks to Peter. And so I'm going to read it again, because in case you're driving down the road or whatever, I want you to be very familiar with this verse. Um, So, and he, and he says, Jesus answers him, blessed are you Simon Barjona for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, Roman Catholics will use this verse to say, see there, Peter was given a special revelation by God. No one else was given this. That makes Peter special. That's why Peter is has primacy over the rest of the apostles. All of the apostles were there, all of the disciples, the 12 disciples, yet Jesus singles out Peter as having this special revelation. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Now, Is Peter the only one who receives this blessed revelation, this revelation that is not by flesh and blood, but by the Father in heaven? This is a great example of why it's so important to try to read, like try to read the whole Bible every year. Just try to to read just a comprehensive Amounts of the Bible because it will help you put verses and concepts together. So let me share a few verses from the Gospel of John. In John chapter 1, verses 10 through 13, it's referring to Jesus. And John writes, he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born. Now pay attention here. How were they born? Okay. He gave the right to become children of God who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of the man, but of God. So, the revelation given to Peter is no different from the revelation given to all men and women who confess Jesus to be the Messiah, that is, the Christ, the Son of the living God. If you believe in Jesus Christ, it is because God the Father taught you to believe. He revealed the truth about Jesus to you. We we learn more about this in John chapter 6, starting in verse 37. Jesus says this, "'All that the Father gives me will come to me, "'and whoever comes to me I will never cast out.'" For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day; for this is the will of my Father that every one who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. A few verses down in john six forty four says this, Jesus says this, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. So, again, if you confess that Jesus is the promised Messiah of the Old Testament, that Jesus is the Son of the living God, you are blessed do not boast in yourself, in your own flesh and blood, in, in your own intelligence. You, This blessing is not of flesh and blood, but from the Father who is in heaven. So Peter's revelation as to the true identity of Jesus Christ is no different than what the Bible teaches is the revelation given to every true believer. Now, In closing, one thing that Roman Catholics and Protestants definitely agree on is the doctrine of the Trinity. And as Christians, we must acknowledge the working of the Trinity in our own lives. I've just mentioned how the Father draws us to Jesus. He teaches us the truth about Jesus. The Son is obedient. That The Son, that is Jesus, is obedient to the Father's will, even to the point of death. Now, I'm recording this episode actually on Easter Sunday, and praise God, Jesus Christ rose from the grave on the third day. The truth is, when Jesus ascended into heaven, he did not leave us without a helper, without a guide to keep us from error. Jesus promised he would always be with us. Now, Contrary to what the Roman Catholic Church wants you to believe, this helper is not Peter, and it's not Peter's successors. Jesus told the disciples with great clarity who their helper would be. In John 14 25 and 26 it says Jesus says to his disciples, "These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the helper." The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you.